reading from Genesis 37, 2 to 14. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was one, because he was the son of his old age. And when he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then his brothers, sorry, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when I told it to, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And uh, now in verse 12, now his brothers went to their pasture, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you with, to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you may speak through Paul as he preaches on these verses. Give us ears to hear your word and open hearts that are willing to let it impact our lives. Amen. We're in the story of uh, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 37, and it's the account of um, Jacob's family, which really is focused a lot on Joseph. The song that we sang uh, just uh, as we were taking up the offering is one that I hope you will maybe write down, look up on the internet, whatever your hand ordains is right. It is a song that um, illustrates and speaks about the providence of God, the way that God leads us in this world. And so it's uh, the theme that we're trying to develop as we work our way through this um, peculiar section of Scripture from Genesis 37 um, all the way to the end of the chapter. One of the things that I want us to wrestle with and wrap our heads around as we go through this story is that the story of Joseph is not meant to stand alone. And I think sometimes we, we have a tendency to take stories about individuals in the Bible and we pull them out of their context to focus on their life. And uh, we do it with Daniel, we, we do it with Esther, we do it with Joseph. There's many uh, lives in the story or Bible that we pull out and take them from our context. And when we do that, I think we lose sight of some of the things that God wants us to learn and understand. I think one of the biggest things that we uh, can wrestle with or need to wrestle with is that we are not the center of God's story. Uh, our world is really self-focused. And how many new words have developed in our language today that, that have the word self or me in them? We are becoming more and more drawn in to focus on ourselves. 
And while the Bible and the gospel is for us individually, we are part of a much grander story, part of a much bigger vision, part of a much incredible or bigger gospel transformation than just about what happens in your and my life. And so that's the same with the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is actually part of the generations of Jacob, which we find in verse 2 of 37. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Uh, you find, and I, I, I need to be careful, but I'm not sure that you find Joseph mentioned in the New Testament apart from Stephen in one of his speeches. He's not in the lineage of, or the genealogy of uh, Matthew. He's not in the genealogy of Luke, but Jacob is. And so this is first and foremost an account of the family of Jacob. And it's a story about how God fulfills his promises to Jacob. But those promises started with Abraham. They were passed on to Isaac, and then they were passed on to Jacob. And so this is a story about God's fulfillment of his promises to those three men and is realized now in Jacob. Back in the book of Genesis earlier, you find God speaking to Abraham, and he declared to Abraham in chapter 12 how all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. But even more specifically, God said to Abraham, look toward the heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he continued it, or, and he counted him as righteousness. See, this is a promise that God made to Abraham. But that promise then would begin to work itself out and be filled, fulfilled in the life of um, uh, Isaac and now in the life of Jacob. This bigger picture is God fulfilling his plan for Abraham. What I think we need to wrestle with is that God's fulfillment of that original promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 will not reach its final fulfillment until all of the people of God from every nation, tribe, and tongue in all of the world is gathered in to the numbered people of God's bride of Christ. And that's where you get to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation there, you read how John looked and he saw the 144,000, which was the symbolic number of all the people who would ever be redeemed. And John looked and he says, And behold, a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes. In other words, God has got a much bigger plan and purpose that he is working out in your life and my life, and we are part of that, but we are not the center of that. And so even with this life of, uh, of Joseph, we have another promise of God made to Abraham in chapter 15, which we looked at last week. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. How is God going to get Abraham's offspring 200 years later into the land of Egypt to fulfill his promise? And so we see how the story of Jacob and the peculiar way that God had his hand on Joseph, but also on all of Jacob's son, how he was working a gospel transformation in their lives to fulfill his promise to Abraham to get the people of Abraham into Egypt and the time of slavery. I love the way that God says this to Abraham. Know for certain. When you read the promises of God, do you know for certain that God will fulfill those promises? 
Can you say to your own self and as you read promises about the second coming, I know for certain that Jesus is coming back. When you read the promise that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, do you know for certain that what God started in your life, he will finish? When you have the promise where it says God will never leave you or forsake you, do you know for certain that God will never leave you or forsake you? See, there's a, there's a, a way that we need to understand about God that there is nothing that God ever says that will ever fall short of being fully and perfectly fulfilled. And so it's in this broader context that we're considering the providence of God, how God works through our lives, through the mess of our lives. And if you were here with us last week, you saw how messy Joseph's family was, how ugly it was, how dirty it was, how painful it was, how messed up it was. And yet God is at work bringing about the fulfillment of his promises. Many of you here today, you're older and you have walked with God for a long, long time. Some of you, maybe not so long, but you know this to be true already. You've encountered roadblocks. You've encountered uh, adversity. You've met pain and sorrow. You've sinned along the way. You've broken your father's heart. And as you meet them and as you walk through it, you wonder to yourself, can God ever rescue anything good from my life or this situation. But now as you're down here and you look back over here, you begin to look and say, I don't know how he did it, but God was able to bring good or to use all of those things. God was working in my life for my good in all the circumstances and events of my life. And so that's the overall promise that we're considering or the New Testament scripture that we are layering on top of our look at Joseph's life is this simple phrase in Romans 8:28 God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God that's providence that's the God you and I serve and so the story now to dive back into a few portions of it along the way I I'm just highlighting stuff I could spend, we could spend so much time on this, but I just need to highlight a few things for us and draw some applications. The first thing that I want us to realize is that in the first four verses of Genesis 37, we're functioning on a human plane, physical existence, human life, the, the kind of thing that you and I live in every day. We'll go out of here and we will function on a human plane. We will go to school and we will function on a human plane. We will go home and our families will function on a human plane. And so here we see the functioning of Jacob's family and it was messy again. Joseph was in the fields pastoring the flock of his brothers, a critical word that's used 21 times in chapter 37. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Ziphlah, his father's wives. Remember, Jacob had four wives. And remember, it wasn't all harmonious in Jacob's home with those four wives and all those children that were born to him. And so he was in the field specifically, specifically with Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. Probably the other brothers were somewhere around, but he was shepherding his father's sheep with the secondary wives of his dad. You can just sense that there's tension in that relationship, in that situation. And then we read that he brought a bad report of them to their father. I'm surprised at how quickly we jump all over this and we jump all over Joseph and say he's a tattletale. 
And I think in a family we recognize, I think any wise parent would, would, would get a handle on tattling pretty quickly. And you fight it, you work with it. Uh, sometimes you're thankful for a little bit of it, but you don't want it to grow and flourish in your family. But people have jumped all over Joseph and accusing him of being a tattletale. We have no record, though, of what the bad report was. We read into it assumptions that we have no right to make. The word report can sometimes suggest a slanted account. It's the same phrase that's used when the spies returned from the land of Canaan and they brought a bad report about the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. Sometimes it's a word that's translated by whispering or by gossip. And yet based on the previous behavior of, of Jacob's sons, we wouldn't be surprised if there was some naughty business going on as they were shepherding. We wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if there was things that were taking place that weren't all above board. One person suggests that Joseph should have said nothing based on those scriptures that tell us that love covers a multitude of sins. That if Joseph had been a wise young boy, if he had been a mature young man, he would have not said anything. He would have just kept his mouth shut. So what was he? Was he a tattletale? Or was he an obedient son carrying out his father's wishes? You see, I tend for the second one. There's another story in the Bible, which is a story about um, David, King David. And you remember the story. There was a time in which Goliath was challenging the armies of Israel. And they were encamped one across from each other. And this was going on for 40 days. And at some time in that period, Jesse, David's father, remember, and David was the youngest son. Jesse said to David, listen, David, I want you to go and see how your brothers are doing. I want you to take some of these cakes, some of these goodies, and there's a little gift for your commander when you go there. And he says, I want you to see how your brothers are getting along and then bring back a report on how they are doing. It's just normal. Go see what your brothers are up to and then come back and tell me what they're doing. And in fact, we see that in Genesis 37 where Lucas read that for us again as Joseph is sent out to see his brothers a little bit later on another time it says down there in verse 12 or verse 14 he says go now see if it's well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word see, I don't think Joseph was this bad kid I don't think he was a tattletale I think he was just doing what his father had asked him to do go tell me how things are and bring back a report it happened to be that there were some things taking place that maybe weren't the best of all things. Then there's a royal robe. It's clear from this text that it wasn't the bad word that inflamed the brothers. It was this royal robe. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. If you go back and reread the story in the first parts of Genesis, you'll realize that Joseph was the firstborn son of Rachel. Rachel was uh, the, the, the second wife of Jacob, technically, but he was the wife that he loved above all his other wives. She was also the wife who was the last to bear him a son. We know that Israel or Jacob hated Leah, but loved Rachel. And the reality of favoritism has got to be brutal. Some of you maybe have grown up in an environment of favoritism in your home. Maybe you work in an environment of favoritism. Maybe you go to school and there is favoritism in a class. You know how brutal favoritism can be. 
And Israel, of all people, should have understood this. He should have understood how damaging the favoritism of his mom and dad had been for his relationship with his brother Esau. And how Esau hated him so much that he wanted to kill him. He should have read the own tension in his tents as his wives just had this tension between them and fought for his affections and fought for his love and the environment that he must have created in his own tent as he, his favoritism brought up all these feelings and these relationships with his wives. But he ignored it. And I suspect that the coat was a visual demonstration to everyone who already knew the truth of Jacob's love, special love, for his son Joseph. He made him a coat of many colors. It's difficult to know what is behind the coat. Most people, and I think they're probably right, say it was a coat that the sleeves would have come down to the uh, wrists and the coat would have flowed down to his ankles, and obviously it was a brightly colored coat. There are texts in Scripture, or one particular text, which um, uh, the same word is used, and it's a coat that has got royal implications. There's another text in which there's uh, priestly implications behind this text. Some say that it was Israel's way of saying that the rights of the firstborn child in inheritance were going to be by bypassed all his brothers and given to Joseph. I tend to think there's maybe a bit of all of that, but the weight seems to be that this coat symbolized that Joseph was going to get it all in a culture in which the firstborn son got it all. And we'll see how this worked out that, in fact, Reuben didn't get the right of firstborn because of his incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's wives. Simeon and Levi didn't get it all because of their murderous rampage in the town of Shechem. Um, and it seems that Judah was the one to which the bulk of his inheritance fell, and Joseph was favored in the blessing of uh, Jacob at the end of his life. And so what's going on here, though, is as the boys saw Jacob wearing this coat, they were inflamed with hatred towards him. It was the coat that inflamed their hatred. It was the coat which was tangible evidence of their father's peculiar love for their youngest brother. By the way, saw is a really important word also in chapter 37, and you can go read it on your own and just circle or underline the word saw. It is an important word along the way. But I wonder, as I've thought about this, how much of the reaction of the brothers towards their son or their brother Joseph were they responsible for? In other words, are we free to go on hating whoever we want? Are we free even to hate one of our siblings because we perceive them to be loved more than another sibling? You see, I, I think there's some responsibility that falls on the brothers for choosing the path that they chose to respond to the way that their father treated their younger brother the way that they did. I don't think there's any place for hatred. I don't think there's any place for hatred in the home. And one of the things that we do as Christians is we fight that impulse to hate. But rather than fight it, they gave into it. So intense was their hatred toward their brother that they could not even speak to him. I wonder with Joseph, could he have been more discreet as he wore the coat? What was he supposed to do? You know, I, I know we've got to be careful to read between the lines, and I'm not trying to read the lines here. I'm just, I think in my head, so his dad gave him a coat. Is he supposed to shove it in the closet and never wear it? 
You know, did he flaunt it when he wore it? Was his dad that naive that he would show his love in that extravagant a way? But so great was their hatred that they could not speak peaceably to him. Not a kind word, not a civil word, only hostility. Have you ever been in a home like that? Have you ever been in a dinner table like that? Have you ever been at a workplace like that? I have, and it's brutal. And what about Israel? Jacob, is this another demonstration of his passivity as he lives with his sons or his naivety? I don't know which is worth, being passive and not saying anything or being so detached that you're not aware of the dynamics of your family? This is really bad, though, isn't it? We thought the first 17 years of his life were bad. Look at these few months of his life. Favoritism, hatred, words, no words. And we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any reality that could reach beyond their human existence and save this situation? In your world, the world in which you live, the world that is full of these kind of realities, is it realistic for you to hold out the hope that God is actually working in your life, bringing about perfection? Or is it really just a hollow promise that you have or hope that you have when you say that, I believe that even in the midst of all this anguish, this emotional pain, this tension, that God can work to bring about good? You don't have to wait long for the answer. It's in the next verses from verses 5 to 11 in the dreams. Dreams play a significant role in the journey of the gospel, and you can trace the use of dreams. I think there's 21 dreams mentioned in all of Scripture. In this particular account of Joseph's life, or Jacob's life and Joseph's, there's three sets of two dreams. There's Joseph's two dreams, there's the two dreams of the prisoners, and then there's the two dreams of Pharaoh. And you might recall, or I'll mention it when we get there, when Pharaoh has the two dreams, one of the things Joseph says is, the reason you have two dreams is to let you know that God has determined that this will happen. And so there's a sense in which these two dreams are a way of saying God is in control. It's fascinating for me to think through that. Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers this, they hated him even more. You get the sense that Joseph can't win for losing. I'm not sure what he was supposed to do. Dreams are a significant, were a very significant part of that world. It was a means of divine communication. He had a significant dream, and it, it was baffling him. It was, he was not sure what to do. I don't know what a young brother is supposed to do. So I think he just naturally, one day as they were sitting around the table, said, let me tell you about the dream I had last night. And he told them, their dream. The thing that strikes me is the brothers immediately knew what it meant. There wasn't any hesitation. They knew immediately what it meant. And their response to him was, really? You say that you're going to reign over us? You say that you're going to rule over us? They understood the implications of the dream, and they hated him. But I think what is even more important is now we're on the spiritual plane. And I think that below their hatred for Joseph was a stronger hatred for God. Because this was God's revealed will. 
And in fact, they say a little bit later, and we'll look at it ne next week, they wanted to kill Joseph, and their response was, and then we will see what will become of his dreams. In other words, we'll show God. God's not going to lead. God's not going to direct. So they knew that this was not just Joseph speaking. They understood that there was divine communication that had been uttered through this dream that Joseph had shared with them. And then we read that Joseph had another dream. And again, he told it to his brothers. And this time, it was his father that rebuked him. But even his father understood the dream. He understood exactly what he meant, and he was, he was frustrated by it. And then again, we say his brothers then were jealous of him. So their hatred now had turned to jealousy because now it, in the midst of their hatred was this nagging sense that somehow, someday, if God got his way, they would bow down to him. And they could not stomach that. And his father stuck it in his head, thought about it. Do you understand what's going on here in the text? Do you see what God is doing as he is recording this for us in our lives? God is declaring that he knows and therefore he controls the present and the future. This is providence. This is what we sang about in that song, whatever your hand ordains is right. In these dreams, we are meant to understand and see that God is the director behind the entire account. And the question that we ought to say and the excitement that we ought to have in our heart or the, out of our sorrow and sadness, we ought, ought to be saying, God, how are you going to bring this about? Can you believe that I read on the wall in the men's bathroom here at PFBC last week this verse behold the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth I tell you them you see what what we're seeing here is the other plane of history we have the human plane and the physical plane of all the stuff that you and I fight with and deal with but above us or around us or through us or in us is the spiritual plane of God where he is directing all of that to bring about his will and his purposes it's the same that you get at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 1 in in verse 1 and 2 where it says King Nebuchadnezzar went up and waged war against Jerusalem there's the physical plane there's the people doing what they do and then the very next line is and God gave Jerusalem into their hands so here we have this loved ones for you and I to wrestle with we might not always see it we might not always understand it we might not always grasp it but we ought to believe it and we ought to know it that in the midst of the chaos of our life God is working and he is directing all things to work out his perfect plan I want to step out just for a moment here because there's a word the boy's reaction that troubled me I want to say also I'm cautious that saying Joseph is a type of Christ I don't know where we find that anywhere in Scripture uh, never does Scripture tell us that we can say that Joseph is a type of Christ I do believe that Joseph can lead us to Christ I do believe that Joseph can point us to Christ but I've not settled in my mind yet whether we can say that Joseph is a type of Christ. There's a story in Luke, Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the ten minas. It's the story of a nobleman who went into a far country. 
And just before he went into the far country, he set up a leader stru leadership structure in the city. But it says, rebellion broke out and his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Does that sound familiar? Did we not just read that in our text? In Genesis chapter 37, verse 5, as Joseph's brothers responded to his dream, are you telling us that we are, you are going to reign over us? Are you telling us that you are going to rule over us? You see, loved ones, there is an ugly rebellion and hatred of authority and hatred of God in all of us. And it comes up in the most unlikely places and in the most unlikely ways. For some reason, we have it in our hearts that, that, that we ought to do things our way, that we ought to control our lives, that we better know what is the way for us to do. And if I have any way in it, if I have any say in it, I will not submit to God. I will not submit to God's ways. I will not submit to God's rule in my life. But do we not know, and have we not just come through the book of Revelation and the book of Psalms where it says, the Lord sits on his throne. There is a control tower in heaven, and that control tower is occupied, and God is the king. God is the only king, and Christ reigns with him. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone, without exception. And I wonder, why is it that in our, your heart and in my heart, maybe not yours, but mine, why do I wrestle with God so much? Why do I fight his way? Why do I resist his law? Why do I reject his rule? What is it in me that does that? Because God's rule is wonderful. God's way is beautiful. God's law is beneficial. There is nothing about God's way, God's rule, God's law that ought to stir in us rebellion other than my sin. And Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rebellion is rooted in the depths of each one of our hearts. And the devil lies to us about the nature of Christ's rule in our hearts. Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the word of God as it describes the beautiful, freeing, restraining, loving rule of God. Finally, a destiny-changing request. We'll come back to this text next week, but I, I want to just spend a couple moments on verses 12 and 13 and 14. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went from the valley of Hebron, and they came to Shechem. A couple of notes. They were pasturing their father's flocks. These young boys would have already been in their 20s by now, um, maybe even a little bit older, and they didn't have their own flocks yet. How long had they been working for their father and it was still their father's flocks? Do you remember how frustrated Joseph was, or Jacob had been himself as he worked for his uncle Laban? 
He says, I've worked for you for these 14 years and I still have nothing to show for it. And so they were in the fields pasturing their father's flock. But then what we read next is stunning. It says they were pasturing their father's flock at Shechem. Do any of you remember Shechem? We looked at it last week. Shechem was the place of a double rape. Shechem was the place of the rape of their sister. Shechem was the place of the rape of the city. It was the place of Canaanite temptation. Seems like one of the oddest places at all to be shepherding sheep. And remember that Isaac's or Jacob's concern as they were shepherding the sheep there, when he spoke to his brothers, he says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Their father's very fear was that because of what they had done, they would be attacked by the people of Canaan. And so they hear, here they are, shepherding their father's sheep. What's even more stunning to me is after all that we have heard about the intense hatred of Joseph's brothers towards him, so much did they hate him that they couldn't even speak kindly to him, that their hatred had grown as they had heard about the first dream, that it, it had burst into jealousy after the second dream, and now all of a sudden we find Israel sending Joseph to them. What is he thinking? Is he naive? Is he stupid? Does he, have the, does he have his head in the sand? Or is he arrogant and is he bold? Is he unconcerned for the life of me? I can't figure out in my head why he would turn to Joseph and say, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. You want another report? Do you want your youngest son to come back and really tell you the truth again about what's going on? And what's Joseph's response? Read it. Here I am. Wow. What obedience. Stunning to me. Well, this is the gospel story, isn't it? Look at the world in which we live in. Darkness abounds. The wicked prosper. Demons are everywhere. Our world is in chaos. It's in turmoil. And not, not only do we see incredible acts of evil unfolding right under our eyes, like, for instance, what has just happened in New Zealand, but we have the political chaos of Canada, the political chaos of the United States, the political chaos of Europe. We have the political chaos around the world. We live in darkness. We live in moral darkness. And we are also sinful. We have darkness inside of us. We have rebellion inside of us. And not only just the world now, but this is the way that the world has been ever since God created it. So much so that early into human history, God looked down from heaven and it says, The Lord, Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the face of the earth. And it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry 
that I have made them. And it's been that way ever since. And what's God's response to this world? Do you know it? Have you heard it? Is it not beyond our comprehension? Unlike Jacob, God knew the state of this world. God had full disclosure on every human heart, on anything that had ever been done, anything that ever would be done in this whole entire universe. God knew exactly what's in your heart. God knows exactly what's in my heart. God knew exactly what would happen around the world at any given point in the time of human history. And what does he do? He sends his son. And what's his son's response? Here I am. Isn't that stunning? God sent his son into a hostile world, a dark, angry, jealous world at just the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might receive adoption as sons. And not only that, but it was in the providence of God because it happened, as Luke or tells us in Acts, that it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Peter describes it this way. He says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I thought about the angels in heaven. God, God, do you know what's down there? God, do you know how dark it is down there? God, do you know how much they hate you? God, do you see how they have rebelled against you? God, do you know what they're going to do to your son? God, what are you thinking? And then I thought about the angels as they turned to Jesus as he had stepped forward. Jesus, your willingness to go is commendable. But really, do you know what you're going to face when you go down there? Do you know how you're going to be hated? Do you know how you're going to be mistreated? Do you know the pain and the anguish that you're going to experience? Do you have any clue at all what awaits you when you step into that world? For God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only son, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Loved ones, your future and my future is bound up in God not turning his face from this world, but turning his face to this world and walking into its darkness. And our eternal destiny is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, who willingly said to the Father, Here I am, send me. In order to rescue us from our darkness, from our despair, from our rebellion, and to change us, and to transform us, and to make us into the image of how God had always intended us to be. That, loved ones, is the gospel. 
And last night, as I sat in my study, that song, and I could only get these few words out again and again, Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. I'm so glad my life was set on a collision course with the gospel. I'm so glad that the gospel pursues us, it welcomes us, it loves us, and it changes us. Will you not give up your rebellion? Will you not, just for a moment, shut the sound of rebellion in your heart, turn it off, and look at the grace and the mercy of God maximized in Jesus Christ? The Father says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, I am amazed. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Father, I can't wrap my head around how you would knowingly be concerned about a world that wanted nothing to do with you and how you would ask your son, will you go? And your son said, yes, I will go. But I know that I am the beneficiary of that. And I know that any who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be freed from the darkness, will be freed from their sin, will be freed from the rebellion, and will be set on a path of redemption and transforming grace. Oh, Father, fill us with awe and wonder once again. Spirit of God, work in the hearts and lives of any today who are here who have not yet grasped the magnitude of your plan and your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.